Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. And Father, we ask you to give us wisdom today, discernment, um, correction, everything that we need, Lord, to um, go through this wilderness experience. Thank you so much, Father. Amen. All right, we're going to continue with Trials of Faith, Prepare Us for Battle, number two. And uh, first revelation I'm going to share is um, the desert shed. And this is anonymous for 2023. I dreamed that I was given an opportunity to go stay at an air. Bread and breakfast. For a few weeks for free. And I was going to spend that time fasting and focusing 100% on God to get closer to Him. Well, of course, it's good to fast from the world and the flesh to seek God. Um, An air bread and breakfast represents trusting in the heavenly provision for food and covering, uh, freely supplied by God. I wasn't sure where the air uh, bread and breakfast was because someone took care of all the details and paid for it. So it was free for me. Yes, we can all freely go into the wilderness, friends, and, um, and separate ourselves unto God from the things of the world, distractions of the world, and so on. Um. This is a spiritual place where Jesus paid for everything and has taken care of every detail of our lives with his life. I had to go on a small private plane, and I believe this represents being led into the wilderness through heavenly places in Christ. I had to go on a small private plane to get there, and the plane flew into a desert which, of course, I believe represents the wilderness, where there was literally no one else. It is our individual fellowship with the Lord, uh, like a, a feast of individual tabernacles, you know, that um, gets us in close contact with the Lord. There were barely any trees, and the dirt was a bright orange color. Well, the dirt represents the flesh, and it's bright orange because of the burning heat of the sun, uh, S-U-N slash S-O-N, in the fiery trials of the wilderness. And uh, as we flew further out into the barren desert, I started feeling God's presence stronger and stronger. 
I assume it was because it's more into God's creation and there are less spirits out there, less things to distract. So when we go into our wilderness, uh, that's where the Lord reveals himself to each of us personally. The desert is where we learn to trust and be dependent on God only. Moses, as a type of the man-child, fled Egypt into the desert and was there for 40 years the first time, uh, which was his tribulation before he was qualified to lead the Israelites through the desert uh, the second time uh, for another 40 years. Uh, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert or wilderness where he was tempted by Satan and he spent much time alone there um, in the mountains and in the desert fasting and praying. The, uh, The Apostle Paul received the revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel from the Lord while he was alone in Arabia. Continuing, Uh, The revelation, as I was looking down, my flesh had slight fear of how strong God's presence was. And I knew that the old man was dying just by being here, and the Holy Spirit was rising. Proverbs 9 and 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 119, 120 says, My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. The plane landed in the desert area next to a silver shed. Uh, The silver shed probably represents our spiritual tabernacle in the wilderness. Silver is the refining and purifying away of the dross or the flesh. Proverbs 17 and 3 says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the hearts. Psalm 12 and 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, purified seven times. Amen. Well, as we grow up in the Lord, we uh, get more and more pure word and understanding from that word. Well, there was a small, old-looking house not far from the shed that looked abandoned. Ah, the small, old, abandoned house represents our old carnal life, which we gave up to follow the Lord into our spiritual wilderness. I got out, and the pilot said he would pick me up in a few weeks. And he went back into the air. And I went and walked around the shed, and there was no Internet service for reception. No worldly electronic distractions, in other words. And no way to get help from man or self-works. The air, bread and breakfast was a large open plain shed without a door. So the veil has been torn by what Jesus did at the cross so that we can come directly into the presence of our Father 
in the Holy of Holies. Inside, it had a table with chairs. I believe that's probably to partake of the table of the Lord, right? What, what He wants to feed us, right? And there was a small room with a door, and inside to the right, there was a bed. Uh, obviously, to enter into the rest, right? Located outside the shed was an outdoor shower and toilet. Well, this represents cleansing our soul of the defilements of flesh and spirit, our sanctification, in other words. And it's done outside because nothing unclean can come into the Holy of Holies. And although there wasn't much there, I was completely satisfied. Well, the soul is satisfied and sustained with the Word in the presence of the Lord. And Isaiah fifty-eight eleven says, And the Lord will guide thee continually and uh, satisfy thy soul in dry places and make strong thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. This is a place in the wilderness with no distractions of the world. True. Revelation 12 and 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that there they may nourish her a thousand two hundred and threescore days, or three and a half years in that case, right? Um... I explored the area and found that there was a cliff edge over the ocean and the land was so very high up. Well, this represents uh, Mount Zion and the promised land high above the ocean representing the peoples, tribes, and tongues of the people of the world. Uh, the temperatures were not as hot as I was expecting, but it was still warm with a nice breeze. Well, when we go willingly into our own wilderness to let the Lord do His refining work in us, the trials are not as hot as they could be if we resist what God wants to do in our sanctification process. In Second Corinthians 12 and 9, we're told, and he has said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Well, amen. I spent the time here growing closer to the Lord, and staying here was a big help to crucify my flesh spiritually and physically. Yes, to get away from the distractions and get alone with the Lord. As you know, when you try to do that, sometimes the devil comes and reminds you of this and reminds you of that and everything, you know, trying to keep you from doing that. But the Lord wants this and we need this. All right, so we call this next one Saved from Leviathan. Marie Kelton, 710-23. During the meeting, I had an open vision of a desert place, the wilderness. 
I saw a stone or concrete slide that was next to a small body of water. The water was a turquoise color. Turquoise is a blue-green color and often associated with waters of the Caribbean. Uh, these waters appear very clear and blue because they are shallow, and there is a lack of plankton, which are a crucial source of food in the sea. Well, these waters could represent taking a vacation to a lot of people, uh, which would uh, which the world does. It represents a distraction from the daily grind, I guess. But the, the, the body of Christ should stay focused on eating the Word of God and continuing to serve the Lord. I saw my spirit man get on a slide and slide into the water. When my spirit man went into the water, it was very deep. In the water was a huge, long, black creature. I knew it was Leviathan. Well, Leviathan is described in the Bible as the serpent. Uh, Leviathan swam around my spirit man like it was about to attack her. My spirit reached up like she was trying to escape. I then saw the hand of the Lord come down and pull my spirit man out of the water and placed her on the land that was on the other side of the body of water. Psalm eighteen sixteen and 17 says, He that sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too mighty for me. I believe just such a thing is about to happen to many people. They're going to be delivered from their enemies. Psalm 31 and 8, And thou hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large place. In other words, a lot of freedom. Psalm 94 and 18, When I said, My foot slippeth, thy loving kindness, O Lord, held me up. My spirit man then turned towards the desert with her back towards the body of water. I knew that meant that I had to continue to walk through the wilderness. Well, we shouldn't entertain uh, vacations from the wilderness training grounds for the promised land is where that leads. Uh, you know, many people think that that's the kind of rest they need. No, we need the rest that God gives. Resting on His Word, believing in His promises. I asked the Lord what the body of water was. The Leviathan was in. I heard Him say, Waters of Deception. So, these are fleshly, appealing luxuries that we can't afford if we want to win the race. Ephesians 5 and 6 says, Let no man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 2 and 4, This I say that no one may delude you 
with persuasiveness of speech. Well, um, there are many people who are caught up in all the luxuries of the world, totally distracted from drawing close to the Lord, and they're in deception. The Lord will destroy the old serpent when he's done tempting us. Psalm 74 and 14 says, Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces. Thou gavest, gavest him to be food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Well, we know that Babylon is being plundered to build the kingdom. Right? Kind of fits there. Isaiah 27 and 1 says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the swift serpent, and Leviathan, the crooked, crooked serpent, and he will slay the monster that is in the sea. Praise be to God. Okay, we call this one Light Track. Samuel 5, 1, 11, 23. I saw a tall mountain. We believe it's probably Mount Zion. Uh, from a distance, and then I saw many people making a journey to the top. Many people start out with us, obviously, on the way to holiness and maturity of Zion, but they don't necessarily all make it, right? We know from the parable of the sower that that is true. However, most of the people took different paths to get there. Some did follow the same parts of another's path, but took diversions and added length and time to the journey. So we are to follow Jesus and keep his way, not turning to the left or to the right. And when we try to go another way, it takes more time and effort. And if we are diverted, we have to start over. The Israelites' journey through the wilderness could have been a very short journey to the promised land. But sin, rebellion, unbelief made it longer, and some died there, obviously. Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33. You shall observe to do, therefore, as the Lord your God hath commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God hath commanded you that you may live, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. I then saw who resembled to be the Lord Jesus at the very peak, and there was a path he had made for them to follow along the mountain. Well, we know the Lord leads us up to high places in God, right? And He's calling many to come and follow Him. Isaiah 3 and 21 says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. And when you turn to the right hand, and when you turn to the left, so you're hearing this come straight ahead, come straight ahead, right? Psalm 23, 1 through 3. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he gives uh, Psalm 5 and 8, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Proverbs 8 and 20, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. It seemed that each of the people making the trek up the mountain had a map, and some ignored it and some followed as close as possible. Well, the Word of God, Jesus, is our map. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, Follow me, and I am the way. And it is obviously the Jesus of the Bible, not necessarily the Jesus of religions. So some follow Jesus closely, and others ignore what God has said. And he gives uh, John 1 and 1, In the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 14 and 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Psalm 43 and 3, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto the holy hill and to thy tabernacles, which are places, uh, tabernacles plural, of course, is those individual tabernacles that uh, the Israelites entered into in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a place alone with God. Proverbs 6 and 23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. I felt that all these people making the journey to the top are brethren with different trials and types of life, and different callings, I would say. That's why there were different paths. Ephesians 1 and 4 in the NENT, uh, even as he chose us in him before the world's foundation, that we be holy and without blemish before him in love. And Jeremiah 1 and 5, he gives, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I have appointed thee a prophet unto the nations. Then I saw, in another vision, individual light rays coming from a light bulb, illuminating a room. All of the light rays traveled outwardly, separately, and independent of one another, and filled the room with the light source. The source of the light, uh, he says, uh, that filled the room is the Lord Jesus. Amen. And the room represents each individual who make up the one body of Christ. John 8 and 12. 
Again, therefore, Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 12 and 36 says, While you have the light, believe on the light, that you may become sons of the light. It's so important that we let the Word of God go into us and recreate Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, Seeing it is God that said light shall shine out of darkness, talking about your old life, right? Who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, he gives in the NNT, uh, Romans 12, 4 and 5. For even as we have many members in one body, but all the members have not the same office, so we, the many, are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another. Then I saw how if the direction of the light rays were to return to the source, the quickest path is to go directly in a straight path. But each ray was never in the same spot as another, and none would reach the source if being diverted or blocked. True. Jesus said uh, his words are spirit and life, and our born-again spirit returns to the Lord. Amen. And, of course, we have to bear that fruit of the light. Or we don't go. John 3 and 13 says, And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Well, okay, we know that the one that's going back to heaven is Jesus Christ because that's the one that came out of heaven. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not you in you, the hope of glory. That's why we can't afford to pick up on men's theologies and things. Um... We are transformed by the renewing of our mind with the Word of God. Ephesians 4, 10 says, He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Ecclesiastes 12 and 7. And the dust returneth to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returneth unto God who gave it. Amen. And he gives Isaiah 40 and 3, The voice of one that crieth, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Make level in the desert a highway for our God. Psalm 107 and 7, He led them also by a straight way, that they might go to a city of habitation, like the light. It shines that way. Okay, um, this is anonymous, twelve seventeen twenty two. Seeking in secret. I heard in prayer, and the Lord spoke. He said, shut out everything. In other words, close off all distractions. The enemy always uses everything he can to distract us from seeking God's presence and to distract us from staying in God's rest. 
And uh, we know that seeking His will through the trials is a test of our faith and devotion to the Word. Just as Job gave acknowledgement and glory to God during his trials. Job 1 and 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? For there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and turneth away from evil. And he also said, Prayer closet. Meaning, dedicate more of your time to God and His Spirit, not the flesh, right? Um, you have not because you ask not. And being intimate with God in prayer has eternal rewards. Distractions will try to steal this time with God. He said, Have patience. Well, he notes here that knowing that your prayers will be answered in His perfect time. That's right. Uh, my thought is James uh, 1, 3, and 4, knowing that the proving of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. So when you pray, believe you have received and hold patiently to that until you see it. Amen. And he, he gives uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh steadfastness, and steadfastness approvedness, and approvedness hope. And hope putteth not to shame, because the love of God hath been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given unto us. So, um, my thought is, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Endure in your faith, hold fast the confession of your hope, that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. He said, speak out. When you can see the enemy attack, call out to me. Well, um, he notes that alert the saints and respond to duty. God sends these tests to cause us to get in line with his word so that the enemy has no advantage. Amen. There's safety in numbers. Because some brethren may have overcome some specifics that we have not encountered yet. It's not only Christ in you, but in your brothers and sisters too, right? Amen. He is there. He said, turn up the heat. Get into deep, fervent, and desperate prayer. Yes, we know that we've been told the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Um, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, effectual fervent prayer. He said, laugh the enemy to scorn, for he does this all the time. <laughs> yeah, well... He, he, he notes calling out the enemy and his bluff and stay in the resolve of Jesus 
in the truth of the Word. Well, the majority of trials are enemies' lies or a twisted truth to deceive, symptoms, curses, and afflictions. Um, they never last. Only Jesus is the everlasting, right? He said, that test is to burn it all back for what it is. To turn it all back from what it is. So, he, he notes, refute and retake the stolen things back from the enemy. True, true. Acts uh, 3, 20 and 21 says, That he may send the Christ, who hath been appointed for you, even Jesus, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restoration of all things, whereof God spake by the mouth of his holy prophets that have been from of old. I believe God is about to prove the restoration of all things. The first fruits of that will be the man-child. Yeah, and then the bride. Their restoration from all things. Amen. He said, In humility give all gratefulness that nothing is done for you or to you unless I allow it. Yes, this gives us rest in the Lord, doesn't it? Praise God in all things. Praise Him for He is in control and we can trust Him only. He's our Savior. We are not. Psalm 149 came to me, 6 through 9. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Wow, the promises there are powerful to take down your enemies. He said, Seek me in fear and gladness for everything. Yes, amen. Um, he said, bring the life of Christ into the open. In other words, reveal the greatest of things for all to experience. Yes, share your victories. Share your um, promises. John 10 and 10. The thief cometh not, but that he may steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. Amen. God wants us to have his life. He wants us to seek him for it. He says you have not because you ask not. He said, love all and be showing the example of him. Uh, and he's, he notes God through us to others. Yes, that's true. Romans 13 and 8 says, Owe no man anything save to love one another. So you do owe them love, right? For he that loveth his neighbor hath fulfilled the law. Hallelujah. He said, 
See that nothing is allowed unto me unless passes the test. It passes the test of being in the image of my son. Well, nothing of self or evil can ever imitate the son. A final result of our trials is more of Christ revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, make sure it is what you're putting into your soul uh, regenerates you in the image of the Son. Uh, men's teachings outside of the Word of God don't do that. Traditions of men don't do that. He said, as you look to me by the Word and heart, you can see I look through all things. And his note, there is nothing that can be hidden from God. This is so true. Only the wicked do not believe that he sees all and will do anything about what they're doing. Right? The wicked are that way. Their, their conscience is seared and they are devoid of understanding. He said, when you see that you need me in everything... And when you are that desperate, you can see me in others too. And his note, everyone is in dire need for more of the Lord Jesus and his salvation. And the fastest way is get your wisdom straight from the, from the Lord, right? Straight out of his word. Meditate on it day and night. He said, pray in tongues and write down interpretation you get. His note is exercising the gifts to be trained and gain experience. Amen. Because these are gifts of Jesus to the world, right? He said, seeking the Lord in servitude and want. Um, and his note is, nothing for selfish gain. Yes, those are distractions. Uh, but to serve the kingdom, right? Everything has to be to serve the kingdom. We are his servants. We are here to serve him, not ourselves or men, unless it's in the way of bringing them into the kingdom. He said, draw close to him. In his note, honestly and sincerely prefer the Lord as priority always. Yes, uh, my thought is talk to him for he desires our fellowship. Talk to others about him, right? He said, fan the flames that burn the traps and attacks. And his note, nothing can withhold you when the fire of the Lord burns everything evil. Praise and worship engulfs the evil. He said, Add to the fire the fuel of the word and continue to add each verse in thought as it burns. And his thought, uh, Keep the fire burning with explosive power. He said, The light shines as the flames burn brighter in the zeal and desire of the Father. In his note, uh, love burns so hot it eliminates all darkness. 
And his prayer is, Return us, Lord, into your wonderful garden and keep us hedged around and protected from all evil under your wings in your promises. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to share a teaching with you um, about the fiery trial uh, in order to overcome the flesh. You know, we have to make decisions. Every day we're faced with a decision. If you decide the easy way, which is the flesh's way usually, uh, then you say, okay, devil, you can rule over this flesh today, right? And that's what uh, you're really saying. Of course, we can see it across the country, too. People who are so-called Christians rising up against the government and actually being used of the enemy who is going to invade this country. But God said, My power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. And He has said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wherefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in injuries, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong." What's he talking about? Being weak in your flesh, to be your own savior, your own provider, everything. Okay. We need to see how the power of God comes to those who will enter into weakness of self. The wilderness is a place of weakness of self because there's not much there for you to sustain yourself. It has to come out of heaven like the manna and the quail, and so on, you know. So, the commands, many of the principles, but also the commands of God, are to put us into a position of weakness. If you obey the commands of Christ, you will be weak, and you'll cease from your works. You will not be able to handle the situation yourself. You will have to trust in God to do it if you obey His commands. Second Corinthians 13 and 4 says, For He was crucified through weakness, yet He liveth through the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him through the power of God towards you. Weakness brings the power of God, Right? In other words, if you're weak to save yourself, God will be powerful. As long as you're doing it, He doesn't have to do it. You won't get to see the miracle, and it won't be by grace. Weakness brings crucifixion in the flesh, but it also brings the power of God to bring resurrection life. Resurrection life is what we've all wanted from God, but many times we won't pay the price for it. We ask God for the fruit of Jesus to live in us, but before you can have the fruit, you have to give up the lust. The two uh, war against one another. They seek to occupy the same territory in your life. They can't both live together. 
The lust must be crucified in order for the new man to live in you and for the fruit to be born. Anger and forgiveness can't be in the same place. You can do one or you can do the other, but you won't do both. Christ was crucified through weakness. He obeyed God's word to him. As a matter of fact, it appears to be a command to him, and he passed on that command to us. To me, it's one of the most important commands in all of the scriptures for those who want to bring forth fruit. Isaiah 50 and 5 says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away backward. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore have I not been confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So he basically turned the other cheek here, uh, and the enemy, of course, took advantage of that. But he's saying that this is the way to God's power and life, is submit to the cross, right? You'll recognize this as a prophecy about Jesus, but his ears were open to the Lord's command. And his command to Jesus was that he was to give his back to the smiters and his cheats to them that plucked off the hair. That command has been passed on to us. It wasn't a request. It was a command. Matthew 5 and 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, resist not him that is evil, but whosoever smiteth thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man would go to law with thee, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Well, the reason that I say that this is such an important command of Jesus is because of our human nature. The lusts of the flesh rise up against a person who wants to obey these scriptures. You can imagine in your mind turning the other cheek, either in word or in deed or in action of some kind, and you know what kind of lusts rise up inside of you when you try to do this. There's a war that goes on inside you when you do this. And that war is your spirit man fighting against and winning against your flesh. Jesus fought that war. Galatians 5 and 19 now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, which is witchcraft. Uh, from here on, you can identify these as having to do with the command. Enmities, strife, jealousies, wraths, 
factions, divisions, parties, envyings. That list right there is just exactly what we're talking about. Maybe maybe some of these uh, that follow this don't apply so much, but they still apply. Drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I forewarn you, even as I did forewarn you, that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So therefore, when you deny yourself these things, you too are in that position of weakness, and uh, God will come through, and you won't be put to shame. So, these things obviously have to be put to death. You know the Lord has given us a method to put these works of the flesh to death. He spoke to me one time and he said, You don't get resurrection life before you get death. Well, that was at a time that I was trying to bring some people into resurrection life and they weren't entering into the death part. And if you want fruit, these lusts have to die. They have to die on this side of heaven, contrary to much foolishness out there. Um, That's the purpose of God. God's grace delivers from sin. It doesn't just cover sin. Yes, it's wonderful that it does cover sin, but that's just for the meantime so that you can have fellowship with God until you manifest its full deliverance. Amen. Jesus came to do away, to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what we're talking about here. Most of these lusts are affected by just one command of Jesus. And they're put to death by obedience to just one command of Jesus. And that is, resist not him that is evil. It's one of the most important and most neglected doctrines in all of the Scriptures. Uh, And, of course, it's a way to Christ-likeness, because that's what he did. So this regards bearing our cross of death to self. We're to resist the devil and to defend the weak. Okay, this is one of the things that seems to be contrary to this, but it's not. You're not defending yourself if you defend others. And uh, and we are to resist the devil. But what's being spoken about here is resisting men, right? And uh, so let's read on. Uh, Galatians 5 and 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lusts thereof. Well, the Lord said that we had to take up our cross and follow Him, as in Matthew 16 and 24. We just saw that He was crucified through weakness, yet He liveth through the power of God. God's power is made perfect through our weakness. 2 Corinthians 13 and 4. If uh, we're going to enter into the resurrection life of Jesus in the earth, we have to enter into His death. We have to take up our cross. 
I don't think many people realize that Jesus always bore a cross. It wasn't just at the end of his life that he bore a cross. He bore a cross his whole life, but not by denial of self. He hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 and 15. And each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. James 1 and 14. Jesus was of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's Romans 1 and 3. I know a lot of people don't believe that, but I'm just quoting what the Bible says. And according to the Spirit, He was the Son of God according to Romans 1 and 4, but according to the flesh, He was the seed of David. Uh, And you know what? He was tempted. Tempted in all points, like as we. So that flesh Jesus had was real flesh. He uh, was a great God because he came down in the likeness of sinful flesh and overcame sin in the flesh. Romans 8 and 3. But he bore a cross all of his life. And that cross was to deny self to deny the old man, to live through him. He wouldn't permit the lusts of the flesh to speak or to live through him. And we have to take up our cross and follow him, or we cannot be his disciple. Taking up our cross is to walk as he walked. We probably won't be called upon to bear the physical cross of Jesus, But we're definitely called upon to bear this spiritual cross that he always bore uh, as to the denying of self. The commands of Jesus put you in a position of weakness. If you obey them, your flesh is going to squirm. It's going to writhe. It's going to try to rise up on the inside of you. It's going to tell you, no, don't believe that doctrine. Uh, But it's just too prevalent, too common in the Scriptures to deny it. Jesus said, resist not him that is evil. Matthew 5 and 39, talking about men, right? I tell you, your flesh rises up on the inside of you, and it says, no, 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 hit back talk back, do something, get even, so on and so forth, right? That flesh just doesn't want to die. It's a crucifixion that we're talking about. You can always tell when the flesh is in trouble because it squeals like a stuck pig. If you don't ever go against it, you don't ever hear it squeal. But I can tell you that the commands of Jesus are going to put you in at variance with the flesh. They're going to cause flesh to be seen by you very plainly. That's when it rises up, is when you're doing something against it, right? It's easy before you read the Scriptures to think that you're doing pretty good, that everything's all right. And then you start reading the Scriptures and you see commands like this, 
And if you start to obey them, you'll find out what lives in you. You'll find out what's way down inside of you when it shows its ugly head and when you go against it. That's where the power of God takes over. We want the fruit of the Spirit, but before the fruit of the Spirit comes the crucifixion of the lusts. Jesus taught us, and He was an example to us. A lot of people think He was an example so that we wouldn't have to die. Well, no, that's not true. Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't have to die. Jesus died so that we could die. I'm talking about dying spiritually, dying to self, not about dying physically, but dying to self. He died to make it possible for us to die to self. Now, some people think that's a false doctrine, that you don't, you're always going to be a sinner saved by grace. You know, well, they don't know what the Word says. So those who refuse to take up their cross and follow Him, those who refuse to obey His commands, are refusing to be disciples. It doesn't matter that they call themselves Christians. Let me show you that Jesus turned the other cheek. But he did it as an example to us. When Jesus was before Pilate and the Sanhedrin, he resisted not the evil. He did turn the other cheek. Matthew twenty-seven, twelve through 13 And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? He thought it was amazing, right? He had the power to say no to the flesh. He had more power than the disciples understood because they thought, they were going to save him with the sword. <laughs> and what did he say? Well, Matthew 26 and 52. Then Jesus saith unto him, Put up again thy sword in its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. That's a promise. Notice. He said, Don't you know I could call more than twelve legions of angels? Matthew 26 and 53. So look, Jesus had power they didn't know of to keep from going to the cross. He didn't have to resort to man's arm of the flesh. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 men in Second Kings 19 and 35. And Jesus is talking about calling 72,000 angels here. That's power. Christians need to realize that their power is not in the arm of the flesh. Their power is in the kingdom of heaven. But that power shouldn't be used when you're going to the cross. You don't want to save yourself from the cross, right? That power should be used to fulfill God's will. Because once your flesh is dead, your spiritual man is a powerhouse. In the very next verse, after Jesus said, Don't you know I could call more than twelve legions of angels? He said, 
How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. In other words, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled if you saved yourself out of your situations every time of, of cross, of the cross? Matthew 26 and 54. We want the Scriptures to be fulfilled in us, which is the manifestation of Christ. However, they won't be fulfilled if you refuse to go to your cross. Just as Jesus had a free will, and he could have called the twelve legions of angels. We have a free will, and we could, in many cases, walk away from our cross. But that doesn't mean that we won't be faced with it again. <laughs> That's the problem. It'll keep coming back till you get it right. We will be faced with it again and again because God is merciful. And we'll be faced with it until we get it right or just run out of time because we are running out of time. We've been put here to bear fruit and we've been given a certain amount of time to do that. There's a door closing at the other end of this life. My wife saw a vision like that on a treadmill. The door ahead was closing. We had to run faster and faster in order to get through the door before it closed. The treadmill was imperceptibly uh, picking up speed going in the opposite direction. And we had to run faster and faster to keep up and make progress. So that's the way the world is. The world is picking up speed going in the opposite direction of the cross for sure. But there's a door closing. We're running a race, but let me say this is not a race against one another. This is a race against time. There's a door closing. You have to bear fruit or else you'll be called what the Scriptures and Jesus called an unprofitable servant, cast forth into outer darkness, Matthew 25 and 30. There's no such thing as bearing fruit without the cross. I'm going to point out just a few of Jesus' commands and, and show you that when you obey them, they put you in a position of weakness, which is where God's power is. Yeah. You cannot defend yourself. You cannot hit back. You cannot do any of the things that your flesh wants because if you do, your flesh will live and it will get stronger because you just fed it. And Romans 8 and 13 says, For if you live after the flesh, in other words, if you walk in submission to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. We want the new man to live, and there's only one way that that can happen. The old man has to die. They live in the same house. <laughs> the spiritual man was supposed to go into the promised land and kill that enemy and live in his house. And we are... In one parallel, that promised land. There's a, a, a right and a wrong in our promised land. A good man and a bad man. 
a spiritual man and a carnal man in this promised land. They're at enmity, one with another. That spiritual man is Christ in us, and he's the spiritual man in every one of us who seeks to take over this vessel. 1 Peter 2 and 18, Servants, be in subjection to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, for this is acceptable. The literal translation is actually grace. This is grace. For, for this is grace, if for conscience towards God a man endureth griefs, suffering wrongfully. Grace? Suffering wrongfully? That's right. God sends us through grace down here on this earth. Sometimes we don't look on it as grace, but it's wrongful suffering. He calls it grace. That's the original word there. We have to go through suffering. Acts 14 and 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Where do we enter the kingdom of God? Here. We must go through suffering because the flesh doesn't die without suffering. If you're not suffering, then you're not ceasing from sin. Peter said, He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter 4 and 1. And that's because when you're suffering, when the flesh is suffering, uh, and I'm talking about that entity uh, of the old man in you, the mind of the flesh in you, when that old man is suffering, it means that he's not getting his way. I'm not talking about this physical flesh suffering. You understand? I'm talking about that entity that lives in us that wants to gratify self. If he's not suffering, you're not bearing the cross. Bearing the cross is suffering, isn't it? You're not obeying the commands of Jesus. When you obey the commands of Jesus, the old man suffers. He suffers death every time you do it. So Peter called it grace here. 1 Peter 2 and 20, For what glory is it if when you sin and are buffeted for it, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you shall take it patiently. This is grace with God. The last thing we want is to do right and have wrong done to us in return. We want justice. We want our rights. The flesh demands its rights. But the flesh is a dead man. If you were baptized, you accepted that death right there. We reckon that the old man to be dead unto sin, Romans 6.11. And dead men don't demand their rights. Dead men don't have rights. You can slap them on one cheek and they'll turn to you the other one every time. That's the way Jesus commanded us. We are dead. Dead to the world and alive unto God. If you want that old man to die then don't feed him. Just don't obey him, and he'll die. And this is grace with God, 
1 Peter 2.21 For hereunto were you called, he said. We were called to suffer wrongfully, to suffer in what the world would call wrongfully. In other words, we're called to suffer when we do right. 1 Peter 2.21 For hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, and when he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. But when we are called to defend the flock from wolves, we should point out their sin, as was done in the Scriptures, you'll notice. This is not uh, our personal cross of denying ourself. Uh, if you are uh, assaulted, obviously you can turn the other cheek. But when you in, are in a position to, like David, defend the flock from the wolves, uh, we should point out their sin as was done in Scripture. In other words, Jesus left judgment, wrath, and payback in the hands of God concerning self. Peter said Jesus left this example to us so that we should follow in his steps. And every day, we're going to have to have an opportunity to do this. There's just no way you could live this life without having an opportunity to do this. Don't waste your time. Redeem the time. Ephesians 5 and 16. The Scripture says, this is what we're here for. Suffering is one of God's greatest methods to put to death your flesh so that Christ can live in you. 1 Peter 3 and 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be zealous of that which is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are ye, and fear not their fear, neither be troubled. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord, being ready always to give answer to every man that asketh you a reason concerning the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that wherein you are spoken against, they may be put to shame who revile your good manner of life in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God should so will, that you suffer for well-doing. Did you hear him? It is better that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's the point right there. We can see a spiritual type there in the life of Christ. When he resisted not the evil, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. So this is a spiritual type for us because 
If we want to be made alive in the Spirit, we must be put to death in the flesh. 1 Peter 4 and 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are ye, because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rest upon you. Hmm. For let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler in other men's matters. But if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. For the time is come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them also that suffer according to the will of God. That doesn't fit prosperity doctrine very well, does it? Let them that suffer according to the will of God commit their souls in well-doing unto a faithful Creator. Commit your soul unto a faithful Creator. You are in the creation process. The process is not to create the Son of Man. You've already been that. It's to commit and, and bring to pass the Son of God in you. Right? So Jesus obeyed his own command in Matthew 5 and 39, and he was crucified for it. I can imagine several places where he could have interjected just a little bit of truth and totally turned the situation around, such as when he talked about destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2 and 19. Of course, he spake of the temple of his body, verse 21. But that's not what was brought out at the trial by the Sanhedrin, and I never saw him even objecting to it, though he knew what he was meaning. He didn't bother to stick up for himself. He didn't say he spake of the temple of his body. He didn't say that. He could have. There's one person from the Old Testament who really impressed me with his understanding of not resisting him that is evil, and that's David. He obeyed this. I've seen probably a half dozen to a dozen good examples where David obeyed this doctrine. He seemed to be very way ahead of his time in an understanding of what it was that pleased God. He seemed to be almost walking in New Testament revelation in some areas of this resisting not evil. And it definitely bore fruit in his soul. Psalm 38 and 12. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and meditate deceits all the day long. This sounds familiar to me. I've been through a lot of this. I told Jesus one time, Jesus, I had more Judases than you. <laughs> Those factious leaders that constantly lied, slandered in order to gain a following, you know, uh, which, of course, turned them over to those demons of witchcraft and, and slander. Um, but 
verse 13 goes on to say, But I, as a deaf man, hear not, and I am as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. So I was put in the situation not just to defend myself, but to defend the body with these liars who were trying to kill them. You know, of course, we're supposed to do what shepherds do all through the Bible uh, when it comes to the wolves, defend them from the wolves. Uh, the cross is a different th- situation. If you're only defending yourself, um, that's a different situation. Verse 14, Yea, I am as a man that heareth not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt answer, O Lord my God. So David put his trust in God to bring about justice, just as the Lord did. First Peter 2 and 23. And not with his own tongue, nor in his own strength. In fact, as we read on here, you'll see that David knew and understood God's purpose. You know, it's a fiery trial when you resist not the evil, no matter what form it is. This so-called righteous indignation rises up on the inside of you wanting justice. But listen, we can't afford justice. Nobody reading this can afford justice. We want mercy. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. Psalm 18 and 25. If you get justice, you're in trouble. Did you know that? God gives justice to some and he gives mercy to others. Romans 9, 21 through 23. Christians get mercy. The world doesn't always get mercy, but I'll tell you what the only thing we better show to the world is mercy because God's going to be merciful and forgiving to those who are merciful and forgiving. And to those who are not merciful, He's going to give justice. Matthew eighteen thirty four and 35. And you'll remember earlier in Matthew 18 how the servant uh, was forgiven of his Lord but turned on his fellow servant and God had him thrown into prison and his whole family. But here, 34 and 35 says, And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due. Yep, that's what happened to him. So shall also my heavenly Father do unto you, if you forgive not every one his brother from your hearts. So justice is not what we can afford. Everybody doesn't even get a revelation of God in this world, but they get justice because every man is going to reap what he sows. Galatians 6 and 7. People ask, What do you do with the wicked who never hear the name of Christ? That's not a problem. They're going to get justice, being judged by their own conscience. Everybody in this world is going to at least get justice. But the Christians, the true Christians, are going to get mercy and grace. And you know why? Because they give out mercy and grace. God's not doing wrong by doing that because He's, at the very least, giving justice to people. 
But we better pray that we don't get justice because that means we'll pay for what we've done and what we are doing that is wrong. David understood this, and Jesus understood this. So David says, For I said, Lest they rejoice over me, when my foot slippeth, they magnify themselves against me. Psalm 38 and 16. And 17 goes on. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. There's that suffering. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. But mine enemies are lively and are strong, and they have, they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They also that render evil for good are adversaries unto me because I follow the thing that is good. Forsake me not, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. 39 and 1. I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. What is it? Let me know how frail I am. You know, when David resisted not the evil, when he kept his mouth shut, when he was really being pressed to speak up, he said the fire burned in him. Have you ever felt that fire? I have. It's just like a real fire burning inside of you. It's a fiery trial that's come to prove you and to burn up the wood, hay, and the stubble. Let it burn. Don't worry about it. You know, we've been told that the fiery trial is uh, in the next life, but that's a big a lie as has ever been told. 1 Corinthians 3 and 12. But if any man buildeth on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest. Where? Here. For the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire, and the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. Here's where you go through the fiery trial to burn up the wood, hay, and the stubble. Not in the next life. The Bible says here, the day shall declare it. There are no days in eternity. It's here that this happens. When you deny yourself in the face of opposition, uh, you can feel the fire burning. And this is where the fiery trial comes. But you can avoid the fiery trial very easily. All you have to do is not obey the commands of Jesus. 
If you don't obey Him, it's easy to avoid those kinds of trials, and quite often we'll go around them. But what we're doing is putting off the day of crucifixion and the day of bearing fruit. God wants to motivate us with many, many scriptures that today uh, is the day of salvation. Today is God's day of deliverance. 2 Corinthians 6 and 2. For he saith, At an acceptable time I hearkened unto thee, and in a day of salvation did I succor thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You are being saved from your old man who cannot enter the kingdom of God. He resists clawing and scratching the floor as you drag him towards the door. Yes, he cannot. Flesh and blood shall not enter the kingdom of God. So, therefore, that has to die. And if it doesn't die then your spirit man doesn't take his place. I found many places where David understood this, and one of them is when Nabal's herds had been protected by David and his men out in the wilderness in 1 Samuel 25 and 16. And by the way, Nabal means fool. And David's men were sent to Nabal to get some supplies for his men who were living in the wilderness. And Nabal answered them very roughly and sent them back without any help. That was in 1 Samuel 25, uh, 10 through 14. So David had decided, I'll just go over there and take off his head. (laughs) 1 Samuel 25 and 22. So meanwhile, Nabal's wife, who was a very understanding and wise woman, decided she was going to go meet David and ask his forgiveness And she did in 1 Samuel 25 and 24. And one thing she said is, Thank God that the Lord has withheld you from avenging yourself at your own hand. Oh, she had understanding. In 1 Samuel 25, 26 and 31. And she said that twice. Then David thanked her for her part in bringing that to pass. 1 Samuel 25, 32 and 33. So you know, there's something wrong about us avenging ourselves with our own hand. If they even knew that in the Old Testament, for goodness sake, shouldn't we know it? Romans 12 and 19. Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. He said, If you do this, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Verse 20. In other words, it's God's job to repay. If we repay, then God has to whip us because we've been commanded over and over not to repay. And if we do it, He's going to whip us. But he doesn't have to whip them. I'll give you an example. If you have two kids and you tell them, now look, don't you hit back. 
If so-and-so does something to you, you come and tell me. I'll take care of it. That's what God says too. If one of them hits back, then the other one has already gotten his punishment. Right? So, therefore, in that case, why should I hit him again? He already got his punishment. The kid hit back. Right? I'm going to have to hit the kid that hit back. Because that's the one who needs the whipping because they disobeyed me. Here's the point. This is the way God does things. If He tells us, don't do it, there's a purpose for it. Ephesians 6 and 12. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and against the powers and against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So we're not hitting back the flesh and blood. Um, We can take it out on the demons, right? We can bind them and so on and so forth. So what we can do must be done in the Spirit. It must be done through the power of faith. It can't be done in the flesh. We can be used of God to speak prophetic words that bring judgment on those who harm and kill His people. But this should not be personal vengeance. And especially not when they do you evil. When they're doing it to other people, Yes, God can use that. He can speak those words. God can judge. We cannot. If we judge, we will be judged. If we have unforgiveness, we will get unforgiven. (laughs) So, let me show you a really good example of this from David. 2 Samuel 16 and 5. And when King David came to Behurim, Behold, there came out thence a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemaiah, the son of Gera. He came out and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shemaiah, when he cursed, Be gone, be gone, thou man of blood and base fellow. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. <laughs> well, he missed an awful lot. Um, I don't know if Shemaiah knew it or not, but David had opportunity about three times to kill Saul, and he wouldn't. It was in his hand to do it, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't resist the evil. He wouldn't repay. He left that to the Lord, and the Lord took care of that. The Lord used the Philistines to take Saul and almost his whole family out, First Samuel 31 and 6. But he didn't blame David for it. David even had to dodge some of Saul's spears and his uh, evil spirits, 1 Samuel 18, um, 11, and 19, 10. 
And Shemaiah continued his railing. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom unto the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thine own mischief, because thou art a man of blood. Second Samuel 16 and 9 says, Then said Abishai the son of Zeruah unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. Well, that's what we usually feel like doing, you know. But we have to put that down, right? Uh, so Abishai was ready to lay his Christianity on the side here. And he was going to go take care of things himself. And uh, the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? Because he curseth, and because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. <laughs> do you see that? The Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Well, David wasn't wrong here. The Lord works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. He sends wicked people to us to crucify this flesh. It's his purpose to do that just as he sent and used the hand of wicked men to crucify the Lord. Acts 2 and 23. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay. So God used these vessels of dishonor. He used the people of Israel and he used the wicked Roman Empire to crucify the Lord, as the Scripture says. It's the same way with us. He put us here in the midst of a bunch of wolves. And Jesus said, I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. Luke 10 and 3. We've been put here for crucifixion, and the world is designed to crucify us. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the sovereignty of God. God designed this world to crucify us. It's the dirt around the seed that puts the outer part of the seed to death so that the seed can sprout, right? The dirt. God created the dirt. And these people are dirt. <laughs> So, Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13 and 8. Stop and think. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that was before Adam fell. God designed a Savior. Do you think we're in plan B? Nope. We're in plan A. There never has been a plan B because God is sovereign. He designed this world to manifest sons. And to do that, you have to have a fallen nature to begin with. You have to have somebody who does not deserve God's goodness. That's where uh, you uh, have to start out because God wasn't creating angels. So, so he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world before Adam fell. God knew Adam was going to fall, and he created the Savior, and he went ahead with the plan anyway. Why? Because you have to be fallen before you can be saved. 
<laughs> He's only dealing with saved people here, you know. And you have to be fallen before you can be saved. And you have to appreciate that salvation. If he was creating angels, he wouldn't have had to make man at all. God didn't want angels. He wanted somebody who was fallen and picked up by the grace of God. You remember what Jesus said to one of the Pharisees in Luke 7 and 40 and 41, 42? And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Teacher, say on. A certain lender had two debts, two debtors. One owed 500 shillings and the other 50. When they had not wherewith to pay, he forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him the most? Simon answered and said, He, I suppose, to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. So if you've been a sinner and you've been forgiven of a lot, you appreciate him a lot. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Wow, you see that? Um, She was a big sinner, and she appreciated so much the salvation of God. Right? In other words, who is forgiven much, loveth much. See, we're going to know how to love God because we don't deserve anything. We have fallen and have been picked up by grace, which is unmerited favor, not by our works, but by grace. We don't deserve anything but justice. But pray you don't get it because God's grace and mercy is far above justice. That's why we have to be graceful with other people. Don't give them what they deserve. You may get what you deserve. Right? Matthew 7 and 2. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you. So don't think that you're going to give somebody justice because you'll get it back. Give them mercy. Give them grace. God will give, God will judge them. God may even judge them out of your mouth, but understand that it won't be with your flesh. The prophets spoke judgments in the book of Revelation. Prophets speak judgment, Revelation 11 and 6. I'm convinced that everything that happens in the book of Revelation comes out of the mouth of God's children. Many of the curses today that are coming upon this world are coming out of the mouth of God's children. In fact, I'm convinced that all of them do. God is bringing judgment, and He's doing it through His people. They're speaking that judgment, but they're not doing it with the arm of the flesh. They're not doing it in the flesh. They're only doing it in the Spirit. It's not a personal vendetta with them. You know we can't rise up against this government, Romans 13. If you do, God promises all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. 
26 and 52. But we can tear down this government because God has a kingdom that's coming. The saints are going to possess the kingdom and they're going to take it from the beast. And they're going to do it in the spirit realm. They're not going to do it in the flesh with weapons and arms and gathering people around them, right? Uh, In the flesh, they must be crucified. In the flesh, you must cease. You must desist. You must resist not him who is evil. In the spirit realm, we can do many mighty things. God has planned it that way so that your spirit man will be strong, but your flesh will be weak. That's the way God's salvation, God's deliverance is going to come. David understood that the Lord had commanded this, and we need to understand this ourselves. All we have to do is read Job to see that circumstances are the same today as they were back then. Job 2 and 10. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And you know what? Job repented after God answered him in chapters 38 through 40. He repented of his self-righteousness. He repented in Job 42, 1 through 6. And God gave him back what he lost in Job 42 and 10. But God used crucifixion in Job's life. Job wasn't physically doing wrong things. He wasn't in outward immoral disobedience. His problem was self-righteousness. He had to repent, and God brought this against him to bring him to repentance. David, too, was put in a position of crucifixion by God. David sent this enemy against him. Uh, God sent this enemy against him, and David understood that. He said in Second Samuel 16 and 10, And the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, because he curseth, and because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my son who came forth out of my bowels seeketh my life. How much more may this Benjamite now do it? Let him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord hath bidden him. The Lord hath bidden him? Yeah. Think about that. The next time people come against you and want to put you on your cross, (laughs) but you keep wanting to climb down, right? Uh, We we do want to climb down off that cross, but you, you can't drive the nails. God has designed the wicked to put the cross in the ground and drive the nails. That's their calling in this world. God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, and he has vessels of grace and vessels of wrath. They're all going to do his will, one way or the other. All things serve the Lord, and he works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. And if you understand this, you can walk in grace and peace in this world, no matter what comes against you, because God put you there for a purpose. He put you there to be crucified. And He put you there so that you would learn to use the weapons of your warfare. 2 Corinthians 10 and 4. 
You know, sometimes the Lord sends the devil against you just so you can defeat him. He'll send him against you. He'll send the enemy against you. But he doesn't want you to go against him by wrestling with the flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 and 12. Remember that the Bible says, Resist not him that is evil. Matthew 5 and 39. And that's talking about men. On the other hand, it says, Resist the devil. James 4 and 7. So there, that's wrestling with the principalities and powers. Resist not him that is evil is talking about man. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with the flesh and blood of the Old Testament. <laughs> and when they did that, um, that was a type of the shadow of them resting with principalities and powers, wrestling with principalities and powers. So that was a type and shadow of what we do in the spirit realm here. We conquer those principalities and powers. So go back over there and read the names of those kings and the names of those tribes that were conquered and study in the Hebrew what those names mean. You're going to find out that they all represented and meant lusts of the flesh and demon spirits. That's who the Israelites were spiritually wrestling with. And everything that happened to them was a type and shadow for us. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Now these things happened unto them by way of example. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age are come. Um, and the word here for uh, example is a parable, right? or a type, or a shadow. The things that happened unto them were by types and shadows. And they were written by, for our admonition. So we got to see the type and the shadow. So go back to the Old Testament and look at it carefully, and you'll see what they wrestled with. Today we think we're supposed to carry on an Old Testament-type warfare in the way we war with people. But you can't grow if you do that, and God will chasten you if you do that, because you're rebelling against his word. And David said, The Lord hath bidden him. Second Samuel sixteen eleven. It may be, listen, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done unto me, and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing of me this day day. Wow. There it is. So David is saying that the Lord will pay him back good for his resisting not evil. If the Lord's going to bless you for it, go ahead and let them curse. Didn't Jesus say you'd be blessed when men would curse you? Absolutely. Matthew 5.11 Didn't he say that the Spirit of grace and the Spirit of God would rest upon you? Have you ever experienced that? Well, I have. When I first learned of this doctrine, the Lord put me uh, in situations where I did, by His grace, turn the other cheek, and I felt the power of God on me for going through that. It's just a great anointing that comes upon you when you obey God in the place where you want to defend yourself, and you refuse to do it. <laughs> You instead leave it in the hands of God and you won't defend yourself. 
So if you do defend yourself, then the old man will live. He'll climb down off that cross. Even though he's crucified, he's not totally dead yet. You can tell. So he can still climb down. It's true that we have to reckon him dead, Romans 6.11. But until he is physically dead, we don't let him live. Don't feed him. Do you know what fasting is a type of? Well, when you fast, you're not feeding the flesh. What does it do when you don't feed it? It gets weak. What does that do? It makes the spiritual man strong. There's a reason for fasting, and there's a spiritual type. The whole chapter of Isaiah 58 is talking about spiritual fasting, about denying yourself. So we see that they had a revelation of that in the Old Testament. Second Samuel 16 and 13. So David and his men went by the way, and Shemaiah went along on the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary, and he refreshed himself there. <laughs> well, that wasn't the end of the story. David never did do anything to Shemaiah, but his son Solomon had him killed because he rebelled against his commands and left the city. It's hard to comprehend why Shemaiah was so against David. My guess is that he was a lowlife who just didn't want to understand the situation. Anybody who was on Absalom's side and saw righteousness in Absalom and not in David uh, and saw righteousness in Saul and not in David was in trouble. He's a sick son of the devil, right? <laughs> so why couldn't this guy figure it out, huh? Well, God is awesome. So he teaches us this. And although God does have his shepherds defend the people from the wolves by revealing the wolves, um, he doesn't want us to individually resist him that is evil. I mean, they'll say all kinds of things against you. And some of those things are designed, like the faction, the faction, uh, the words of the faction are designed to destroy people. Because when you read slander and you don't obey the word, uh, receive not an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses of sin. So when you receive slander, you're disobeying the word. Uh, none of these people ever obey Matthew 18 and 15, which is go to the person and see if what you're saying is correct. Right? None of them obey that. And, of course, they're destroyed. You can look at them and see that they're destroyed. They have lost their interest in God. They don't read the Bible anymore. They only want to kill people, spiritually speaking. So, yes, they must be, the people of God must be defended from these wicked people. It's not for the purpose of defending self. Even though if you don't tell them, look, they're telling you a lie in order for you to receive those witchcraft and factious demons 
You have to tell them that, that this is a lie. This is slander. It looks like you're defending self, but you're defending them by causing them not to receive something from the devil that's going to open them up to faction, witchcraft, slander, demons, so on and so forth. God is good. He is so uh, wonderful to us. Uh, By the way, uh, we must have done something right. He's about to fulfill His judgment upon our enemies. Get ready. It's here. Well, thank you, Father, for that. In the name of Jesus, we uh, praise you. We give thanks unto you. You're going to prove who was good and who was right and who was bad and who was wrong. It's going to be very clear by your hand who you consider to be right and good and who you consider to be wrong and evil. It's going to be proven. All we have to do is sit back and wait. It's going to be proven. So we praise you, Father, for your goodness to us, your grace to us, your mercy to us. We thank you that you're going to turn around things for the bride. You brought the bride through a crucifixion at the hands of these very wicked Satanists. And that's over. They don't know it yet, but they will find it out. That's over. And thank you, Father, that your bride is going to enter into blessings and uh, deliverance. And when these wicked people die who have pooled their satanic, demonic powers to fire them at the Christians, when they die, those people will be set free. The righteous among them will be set free. For that power is broken. It will die with the people who used it. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, for pouring out your Spirit. Thank you for revealing these things, Lord, in right balance to your people. It's a balance in everything. It's like riding a bicycle. You have to keep moving forward, and you have to have balance. Or you don't go anywhere. Right? So we got to have both. Balance. Know when there's a time to judge and when a time not to judge. Um, Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. Thank you for the deliverance of your people, which is on the doorstep right now. Uh, Thank you for your grace and mercy uh, in setting the captives free and opening the prison to them that are bound. In the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord, for catching up your man-child who is going to come back and execute what he's supposed to execute. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, saints, God bless you and keep you. Um, We'll do this again sometime. Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. Oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you.
Jesus, my Lord Jesus, oh Jesus. 